Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live Saturday mornings from 9 till 10. Find us online at federalnewsradio.com or hear us on the radio in the Washington, D.C. area on the following frequencies, 1500 AM and 1039 FM HD 2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. A lot of action this week. The Supreme Court's been busy. Mm-hmm. They've eliminated the uh, ban on sales tax. So now things we buy will be online, will be taxed. They've also done something on Internet privacy so that, you know, your data on your cell phone is a little safer this week than it was than it was last week. And, uh, of course, this was the week of the summer solstice. Oh, that's right, yeah. And so we'll explain what exactly is the summer solstice other than a big party day. And uh, this week we're going to feature Morris Chang, who's the father of the Taiwanese chip manufacturing industry. He's got an interesting background. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Touch and go there for a second. Touch and go. We got an email from Joy in Ashburn. Dear Doc and Jim, I recently bought a new Asus laptop with a trackpad. I hate the trackpad and want a mouse. Now, the laptop supports Bluetooth. Should I get a Bluetooth mouse or an RF dongle mouse? That would be radio frequency dongle mouse. You just wanted to say dongle. I, I definitely did. You know, you never hear of an RF dongle mouse it just those words normally don't go together the second question uh, should i get an optical mouse or a laser mouse i'm i'm a little confused by the whole thing i really don't understand the difference love listening to the podcast since 9 a.m is just too early to listen to the radio (laughs) that is okay that is solution (laughs) fall asleep with the radio on and then and then just wake up wake up to it it. exactly yes make it set set up set the clock radio so it turns on to tech talk in the Mm -hmm. morning okay here are a few factors to consider when making your selection now on boot up a bluetooth mouse will take a few seconds longer to start compared to an rf mouse because it has to set up a connection now that's a slight disadvantage for the Bluetooth mouse. But on the other hand, the RF dongle mouse requires a dedicated USB port for the USB receiver transmitter. Now, if you have a few USB ports, not too many, this can become an issue. And I believe on laptops, you don't have that many USB ports, so it could be an issue for you. Now, the RF and Bluetooth mice both use batteries, either AA or AAA. <clears throat> now, previously... Bluetooth actually used more energy than the RF, and so the batteries wouldn't last as long. But with the latest Bluetooth standard, Bluetooth 4, which was designed for low energy and low latency, they're pretty much equal uh, in terms of uh, in terms of battery life. But make certain you get something that supports the latest Bluetooth standard. Now, Bluetooth mice is a, little, a mouse is a little bit more expensive because they've got to pay a royalty to the 
uh, Bluetooth SIG group, which actually developed the standard. And, uh, you know, now the other limitation is that an RF mouse can only connect to one device at a time. So you plug the dongle into your laptop, you can only connect to that. On the other hand, a Bluetooth mouse could could attach to your TV if you wanted, to your laptop. It could, it, one mouse could attach to multiple devices and, uh, and work quite well. They both operate in the 2.4 gigahertz spectrum. So on average, it's a wash. But in your case, because you've got a laptop with, with a fewer number of USB ports and, it, and you just bought it, which means it supports the latest Bluetooth standard, I would recommend a Bluetooth mouse. Now, in your case... Um, I actually have an RF mouse that, it, it, that I'm using on my laptop, but I have like four USB ports. I think if I would get, uh, when I bought my RF mouse uh, a couple of years ago, the, it, I think the RF was a better choice because of the Bluetooth standard. But now with the latest Bluetooth standard, I think if I would get another one, I would get a Bluetooth mouse. Now, let's talk about the optical mouse versus the laser mouse. I mean, that's a little confusing. The, the optical mouse uses a light-emitting diode, not a laser. And, they, and it's, usually, it's usually a red diode. And so you look underneath, you can see a little red light. And that was the original one that came out. And then a couple of years ago, they came out with an infrared laser device. Now, that actually emits in the infrared. So you can't, you can't see. You don't see any red light. Now, the infrared laser has a more directed beam. And, um, and initially, the laser provided slightly better tracking because it, it gave better, it, it was a more directed beam, gave better reflectivity off the, off the surface. Uh, but now, with the uh, optical mouse improvements over the last couple of years, there's almost no difference between the LED, the red LED mouse that they call the optical mouse, or the infrared laser mouse they call the laser mouse. There's almost no difference. So... I would uh, I wouldn't even worry about which one of those technologies you use. Just just get a mouse that feels that fits your hand and you like the the button configuration. We got an email from Yawul Sarkis. Dear Doctor Shirts, how are you doing? You guys are great, and I love the show. It's as always. I have a little issue concerning deleting a video from YouTube. Uh oh. And it's the only copy that I have. Uh, I see the video on my account, but I'm unable to play it. Can you help? It's as Im- this is important. Thank you, Yawul. <laughs> so, uh, so it looks like you are trying to save the YouTube video, uh, copy it to your to your desktop, and then delete it. But you can't even play it now. Now there are a number of reasons why YouTube videos won't play. Most of them are because you've got an outdated flash. You need to update your Adobe Flash, because it, YouTube requires Adobe Flash to run, so you have, typically you have to update that. There, there are a number of reasons why YouTube's YouTube videos won't run on your computer. Now, what I can't tell is whether it's only this YouTube or whether it's all YouTubes. If it's all YouTubes, it's probably the Adobe Flash. If it's just this YouTube, then there's something specific with this particular video. Now, I think that you should try to download the video to your laptop or to your computer. And there's a great program called KeepVid, KeepVid, K-E-E-P-V-I-D, and it supports YouTube, Dailymotion, MegaVideo, Metacafe, and Vimeo. And what you simply do, you you just go to the website, um, 
you just go to the website, keepvid.com, and uh, you take the URL of the YouTube video that you want to download, and you just, you, you go to, you know, you go to YouTube and you copy the URL, which is the, which is the web address. You know, URL stands for Universal Resource Locator, by the way. Thanks for sharing. You know, now you that's know, been covered in previous programs. It's been covered in previous, co- and I'll tell you, if you know, just as an aside, if if you want to go like to a cocktail party and drive everybody to the other side of the room, just start talking about the universal resource <laughs> resource locator, and you, you will have the whole it, side of the room. To you yourself. will be you will be radioactive. Do it at the <laughs> snack table, which is a better idea. Oh, that yeah. way, you have the that's snacks right. to yourself. So frequently, I go to. I don't even know. I go to cocktail parties. I'm radioactive, but but I own the snack table. Interesting. Now, here we go. So you you take and copy the the web address, the URL, and you paste it into the uh, into the um, into the input uh, uh, line there on keepvid.com and then you just click the button download. Now, it turns out there's like a there's an ad on this website that's trying to trick you to opening something. Mm-hmm. So there's a big large download button on the ad. That's not the download button. What you want to do, there's a there's a download button that's a smaller one to the right of the bar. You want to click that one. So make certain you click the right download button and don't do something with that with that ad. Now once you click download, it'll give you an option of whether you want to download the video in Flash and MP4 or WebM format. And I'd recommend you just pick MP4 since that's got the greatest compatibility and you'll download the video to your computer. Now, once it's download, once the download is complete, play it off your computer to make certain that it works. Then you can go back to YouTube and delete the video. I think that was your problem. I couldn't tell for sure. If that didn't answer your question, send me another email and I'll take another stab at it. We got an email from John in the Outer Banks. Dear Doc and Jim, I have a Microsoft Mail. I have MS Mail on my Windows 10 laptop. And I have an old Verizon account, and uh, I cannot configure it in MS Mail. Remember, Verizon was bought by AOL, and then Verizon ported all their mail services to AOL Mail. Now, I love my Verizon email address and don't want to give it up, but I just can't get it to work on this Windows 10 laptop. Please help. John in Outer Banks. Well, John, this is a um, – so I went on. I have an old Verizon account, so I thought, well, why don't I just I, – well, kind of defunct, but I said, why don't I just use it and see if I can install that Verizon account on my Microsoft uh, – on my MS Mail and my Windows 10 machine. So I went ahead and went through the motions to install it. And, what you you know, of course, you just go to uh, open up the email client. Then on the top of the left, you click on Account, and then a pop-up window will come on, and then you click on – uh, they'll they'll give you like a Gmail account, a Yahoo account. So none of those are listed. So then you'll say other account, click on other account. And then you put in your email address, your username, and your password. That's what you do, and uh, and that, that should work out. Now, your username is going to be, this in this case, the same as your email address. So your username and email address are really the same. And then the password for your Verizon account. And then you click create an account. Now, the problem is, and I realize why yours doesn't work. So after we created the account, it didn't work. I couldn't download email from my Verizon account. So it, it didn't work. So that meant that the configuration that Microsoft thought was correct is actually incorrect. So then what I did, I just left that account once it was created, 
And then I clicked on, uh, opened up mail again, clicked on accounts, and then on the, the pop-up window came out, and now my Verizon account is listed. So I clicked on the Verizon account, and then I click on change mailbox settings, and then you scroll all the way down to advanced mailbox settings, and I clicked on that. And this is where you've got to put in the specific configuration for Verizon Mail. It turns out the incoming server... And I had to do a lot of research to get this, by the way. So you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> and free of charge. <laughs> That's right. So the incoming mail server is IMAP, I-M-A-P dot A-O-L dot com. But that, can, that has to be addressed on port 993. But only 993. Only 993. Okay. So you, you might notice there's no place to put in the port number. So what, you have to put it as part of the address. So you put in... Under the incoming mail server, you put in imap.aol.com, then you put in colon 993, and the colon 993 means send it to port 993. Now, the outgoing mail server is smtp.verizon.net, and in this case, it's colon 465, and if you get the wrong ports, you're not going to get anything. So you just have, and I'll, you can just, I'll, I'll have this thing posted to the web by Monday and you can, you can read all this stuff. And then there are four choices under that. You want to select outgoing server requires authentication. Yes. Use username and password for sending mail. Yes. Require secure socket layer for incoming mail. Yes. Require secure socket layer for outgoing mail. Yes. Once all that's done, click OK. And your Verizon account will work. I, I tested mine. It worked perfectly. So good luck. I hope that explanation will get you through the process. We got an email from Kathy in Colorado. Dear Tech Talk, I'm getting a lot of spam. Should I respond to them and tell them to quit sending it? Should I report them? If so, where do I report them? Please Spam give me, police. Please yeah. give me some guidance, Kathy in Colorado. Well, Kathy, never respond to spam, period. It won't help. In fact, it might make things worse. When you respond to an email that's spam, it basically, uh, well, first of all, it may be a fake from email address. So if you respond to it, it may go to somebody's account who doesn't know anything about it because frequently they will put in just a fake from account, uh, from email address, so that they, they they can't be detected. So you know, so if you if you answer it, you may be just spamming some other person who doesn't know anything about it. Now, if they didn't put in a fake email address, you're actually talking to them. Then you've just verified to the spammer that hey, this is a good email address because they've got millions of email addresses and probably ninety percent of them are bad. But if you tell them this is a good email address, they put you on the good email address, and then you really get the spam. So, really, it doesn't. It, it really doesn't pay to um, to respond to it. Now, if it's uh, if it's an email that you ordered, like suppose you went to a store and you said, "Okay, you can send me notifications." If it's something that you signed up for, in that case, you can scroll down to the bottom and unsubscribe to it, and that would be sort of a legitimate spam that you actually ordered and now you want to get rid of it. And that unsubscribe, in that case, will work. But this unsolicited spam that comes in, don't answer at all. Now, as a last resort, you might consider moving to an email service that has a better spam filter. Google? And, yes, Google Gmail. Gmail has got the best spam filter. 
So that's why my Verizon account was defunct because there was just too much spam on it. And I moved I moved from my second from my personal account all to Gmail. And I think it's got the most fantastic spam filter out there. They do a great job. Mm-hmm. And they sort of I mean I think they use artificial intelligence. They and it's crowdsourced. If 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 you get a if if a spam does make it through, you can you can you can you can mark it as spam, and they'll and then they they will then in the future not send that to you. So they're they're really the best in terms of spam filtering. So if it's a big problem for you, just go to Gmail. We got an email from Susan in Alexandria. Hi, Dr. Shirts and Jim. One of your listeners last week noted how he can tell the difference between reruns. Oh, this has become a popular, popular topic, Jim. <laughs> Dead giveaway is not giving an answer at, at the end of the pop quiz. Well, if but he says, but this Susan listens. But Susan says we are tipped off at the very beginning of the show oh, when Jim gives a rundown man. of the topics. Ah, that's it. That's exactly right. We'll be, uh, that'll be covered. Uh, that'll be covered during the show. Now, of course, if you don't recognize any of the topics already, it means that uh, there's a good chance to catch up. So I like to listen to the rundown, and if I don't haven't heard those topics, I listen to the show. It's I, I love that introduction. Well, thank you, Susan. You are very astute. And so smart cookies out there. Smart cookies. I've tried my very best to make them sound like. I'll just have to, you know, call you yes. and have you tell us what's on today. Exactly. Oh, I have a way oh. to do that, Doc. Oh. <laughs> I do have a way to do that. Interesting. Okay, now we have. Okay, now we've got an email from Mimi in Orlando. Dear Doc and Jim, I use MAC address filtering, and I don't use. Um, WPA, uh, that's an authentication encryption for Wi-Fi, by the way. I realize it means I must enter the MAC address each device, each time I want to connect to my device, but then, but then, you know, I don't have to worry, I don't have to worry about the passwords. Uh, What are your thoughts about this? Is this really a secure? Well, the short answer, Mimi, is that this is not very secure. MAC address filtering. See, every device has a media access control number, MAC address. It's the hardware address number on your computer it's a um and every computer has a they've got both an an ip address sort of an internet address as well as a hardware or machine address and uh the machine address you know the you can basically the the wi-fi network can read the machine address and you can simply say if it's this machine address uh, i'll let that machine address connect if it's a machine address that I don't recognize, I won't let it connect. And so that's so you're basically filtering on the media access control address or the MAC address. Now the reason that's not very the reason that's not very secure is that a you've got no encryption, so people can sniff your network because you're, nothing is encrypted. And b uh, people can do MAC address spoofing. So for instance, I could simply observe your network, and I could observe the MAC addresses that are active on your network, then I could take my computer and I could configure it to have a fake MAC address. That's called MAC address spoofing. And then I could log on to your computer. But, of course, once I log on, I kick you off because I only take one MAC address at a time. Mm-hmm. So MAC address is really not effective. That's how, you know, when my son was going to school, that's how he would get on the uh, the campus, um, you know, network. He used he used MAC address spoofing, and then he I don't know he just he saved. You his, don't want to know too much. I don't I don't want to know too much. So I, I mean I know that he figured out you know I didn't teach him this. He figured out MAC address <laughs> spoofing on his own, 
and um, and he was he was uh, he was in lifeline. So that's not very secure at all. I'd recommend you use WPA2 uh, uh, for your security because WPA can be cracked in about five minutes or so. WPA2 takes a little bit more work, and then you got a little bit more security. So MAC address filtering, not a good idea. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. And we'll get back to you uh, either immediately or at the next show. You know, Doc, since we're talking about it, we were a best of show two weeks ago, and we had discussed giving the answer when we get back. Yes. On 6-9, we talked about Gerald Anderson Lawson. Yes. African-American engineer. Mm -hmm. Um, The answer to the quiz was he operated his own amateur radio station in his apartment. So there you go. It's Saturday morning. All right. And we're going to have to go back to the drawing board to make you... To fool you <laughs> even more. Uh, this is Tech Talk Radio, heard every Saturday at 1500 AM, uh, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, Federal News Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. Ready to make a real difference in 2018? A degree in cybersecurity, digital forensics, or networking and telecommunications could help you secure your future as you help secure the world. Stratford University is now enrolling for 2018. Classes start January 8th with career-focused IT degree programs to fit your busy schedule on campus and online. Let Stratford's experienced IT faculty share their industry knowledge and practical solutions to help you succeed in one of today's most sought-after fields with accelerated classes and year-round program starts to help you earn your degree faster. Register today at stratford.edu slash 2018. That's stratford.edu slash 2018, where you'll also find details on Stratford's limited-time $15,000 IT scholarship competition to help you achieve your degree goals. Get complete information now at stratford.edu slash 2018. Stratford University, changing lives one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Morris Chang... Morris Chang is best known as founder and former chairman and CEO of the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, which is the world's largest silicon foundry. He is still fondly known as the father of the Taiwan's chip industry. Chang was born July 10, 1931 in Ningbo, Zhejiang, China. Well done. When he was young... He wanted to become a novelist or journalist, but his father did not agree with the decision. So he had to move on to something else. It was 1948, and uh, China was at the height of the Chinese Civil War, and it was a year before the People's Republic was established. That's when Chang moved to Hong Kong. So he went through the, uh, the, 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 the war with Japan, he went, he went through the, the, the war with Japan. He went through the Second World War, and he went through the Chinese Civil War. I mean, his whole childhood, up through 18, he was just constantly in battle over there in China. 
And then, of course, when Mao took over in the Chinese Civil War, his whole family moved to Hong Kong, which was at that time, you know, a British, uh, a British colony. Now, the next year, after a year in Hong Kong, he moved when he was 18 to the United States to attend Harvard University. So he was going to Harvard, and he uh, he decided that he he really didn't like Harvard because he want he did he felt his his work at Harvard was not going to lead to a good job. So he decided to transfer to MIT, Massachusetts in- Institute of Technology, and while at MIT, he received a Bachelor of Science and a Master of Science in Mechanical Engineering. He got the mass he got the Bachelor's in fifty two and the Master's in fifty three. Now he wanted to enroll in the PhD program. But he failed the qualifying exams, <laughs> so they wouldn't take him in the Ph.D. program. So huh. then he, he started looking around for a job in industry. So in 1955, he was hired by Sylvania Semiconductor. He was hired as, a, as, a, as an entry-level engineer, and he worked there for three years. But he decided Sylvania is not going anywhere in the semiconductor business. I want to I go with a company that's really on the up and, up and, up and rising uh, you know, really expanding quickly into semiconductors. And at that time, Texas Instruments was really expanding their whole silicon processing capacity, and they were expanding quickly. So he decided to move to TI in 1958, and he was hired there uh, as a— uh, and after three, by the time he was—by the time he'd been there three years, he rose to manager of the engineering section of, uh, of TI. Now his— I mean, this is what he did. His first big accomplishment happened within three months after he joined TI. He he was actually just assigned as a processing engineer to to one of the silicon production lines, and and the, the the particular line that he had had almost zero yield, which 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 meant uh, you know that maybe you know, like one chip out of a thousand was useful, and. Um, and they just could not solve this problem, and they're not going to make any money with you know with near zero yield. So he started tweaking the process. He started tweaking how you know because you've got to diffuse the dopant into the silicon. You've got to get the temperature. So he started tweaking the formula, and you know changing the diffusion times, changing you know you know when they what temperature they put on the different metals, and you know just start tweaking around. And and he used the same sort of systematic tweaking process that he had learned at Sylvania, where you just you change one thing, see what it does, and change something else. It was just systematic, you know quality improvement uh, in in a very in a very logical sequence within a month he increased the yield to 25 to 30 percent and this was astronomical because all of a sudden that production line was extremely profitable and that's why they put him in charge of the engineering section of the company after only three years Mm -hmm. now in 1961 uh, this was after he had he had, he had been put in charge of the engineering section. They said, this guy's a real a, a real star here that we've got here. So T.I. decided to send him to Stanford to work on his Ph.D. So T.I. in 1961 sent him to Stanford to work on a Ph.D. in electrical engineering. They paid his salary. They paid his tuition. They paid everything. So actually, he was probably lucky that he, was, he failed the entrance exam there at MIT. <laughs> Because actually, Stanford was really ground central for silicon. Mm-hmm. You know, that's 
for you know for silicon um you know it was research. all on the west coast right yeah well well that's we'll see all the silicon you know sort of grew out of the uh, out and around stanford and berkeley area that's silicon valley mm-hmm. because that's where all, all the research coming the universities when when in industry so he went to to ground central where there was uh, you know silicon research and he worked on his and in 1964 after three years he got his phd in, in, elect, in electrical engineering then he went back to ti and he just started. He was on a fast track. He, during his uh, uh, career at TI, over it was a 25-year career. He rose ultimately to Group VP in charge of all of TI semiconductor business. Now he started uh, at TI working on germanium transistors. This was the the original semiconductor germanium that they used for transistors, and um, and that's where he got the yield up to 25 to 30 percent. Then. He moved to silicon transistors because silicon had the ability to be faster than germanium. And so if you wanted high-speed integrated circuits, you needed to go to silicon rather than germanium. And so then he switched to silicon transistors uh, for integrated circuits. And he engineered the shift. Uh, Initially, the transistors were were, uh, NPN transistors, so-called bipolar transistors. And they moved to metal oxide semiconductor transistors, MOS transistors. And he engineered the shift in the production line from bipolar to MOS integrated circuits. And he was a superstar there at TI. He kept moving up, 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 up. He actually did something else that was very controversial, but it actually did something that, that gave TI tremendous competitive advantage. He came up with the idea of pricing semiconductors ahead of the cost curve. So that means that you would project the cost of the semiconductor when production, say, were 10 times higher than it is today. And you sell it today as though you're producing it at 10 times the rate, which means you're going to sacrifice early profits for market share. So he modeled this thing out, and he started pricing things ahead of the cost curve, he sacrificed early profits to gain market share. And because he was achieving manufacturing yields that were so good, he developed a process that would have the greatest long-term profits. He transformed the TI semiconductor business. He was a superstar. But he ultimately, his, his star ultimately faded at TI. They moved him to consumer electronics. See, he was more of a back-end process guy. So mm-hmm. then all of a sudden he had to do consumer electronics. I mean, Not was, his thing. It, it was out of his wheelhouse. So he worked on <laughs> consumer electronics and, uh, you know, the sales didn't grow. It was just consumer electronics division stayed flat. Now, there was one thing that he was super proud of. This was the product that he developed. He spirited under consumer electronics, the TI Speak and Spell product. <laughs> Don't laugh at that, Jim. I had a speak and spell. I, I liked, that explains I, I liked, why your spelling addiction I, is so perfect. I liked I liked my uh, speak and spell. What was the other one? That was the, the the one with the barred yarn animals. Oh, yeah. cow goes moo. You pull the string. And... Yeah, well, that was probably one of his other. So the thing is, same he, technology. He 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 he. After twenty five years, I mean, the guy failed at one job there at TI. They put him out the pasture. And so he was there, VP in a corner office with nobody reporting to him. I mean, that was a, like, you know, like the, the huge insult. So he he left TI after 25 years, 
without a job. He says, I'm not going to sit here as a well-paid VP of nothing. VP of nothing. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to leave and I'm going to keep my dignity and I'm going to move on. So he just quit without a job. Uh, the next year he got he became president and CEO of General Instruments Corporation. It really wasn't his cup of tea. He left it there after a year because the Republic of China recruited him to be chairman and president of the Industrial Technology Research Institute, ITRI. Now remember the Republic of China is what Taiwan calls itself, which is why China doesn't like Taiwan. <laughs> because China says, we're China. You can't You're be China. You're not China. We're China. That's right. So this was the... No, we're China. <laughs> so this was the Republic of China, <laughs> otherwise known in the U.S. as Taiwan. Uh, you see, we don't... <laughs> We don't put up with that here. We don't. We don't call them Repu- Republic of China because it upsets Beijing. So we we call them Taiwan, mm-hmm. but uh, it's really the Republic of China. So Republic of China offered him a job to actually try to jumpstart the uh, technology in Taiwan and the, and with, through this Industrial Technology Research Institute. So he looked at what what the strengths that Taiwan has. They had. If you want to get into the semiconductor chip business, you've got to have a lot of intellectual property. You've got to have chip designs. You have to have, uh, you know, a lot of intellectual horsepower to design these chips. Taiwan had none of that. Uh, if you want to be in a chip manufacturer, a chip design, you also have to be able to sell the, the products. Uh, Taiwan had no marketing and sales capacity in this at all. So he said, well, if we try to go and if we try to then, you know, compete in the technology market as a complete um, as a complete technology company, making our own products, making our own chips and then selling them, we're going to fail because we, we don't have what we need. He says, all we have is our desire to do production. So he proposed and this was actually when he proposed that people thought he had rocks in his head. He proposed that they become a foundry where companies that can design their chips, will send them the designs, they'll manufacture the chips and send them back. And so they won't own any of the intellectual property. They'll just become a, a house that does manufacturing. And people said, you're crazy, because the big companies, will, whenever, they, whenever they need excess chip, whenever they have you know, inadequate chip pr- production capacity, they'll, they'll give you a few crumbs, and then as soon as they build up their capacity, they'll take the crumbs back. I said, it's, it's not a sustainable market. But he's... He said, I believe this is a sustainable market. So he managed to get investors, and they lost money for four years. And uh, he foresaw the rise of what's called the fabulous industry. Fabulous industry. This is companies that do not have fabrication capacity. Fabulous industry. Because when he was in the U.S. at TI and other places, he saw a lot of really smart engineers who wanted to spin out and start their own companies with some great chip ideas. But they couldn't do it because they would have to invest in a silicon foundry to to produce those chips. And that was just too expensive. It was too capital intensive. So he felt that if they had a fabrication company that could fabricate chips for companies that had great intellectual property but couldn't produce them, that they could support a whole fabulous industry. And so he basically was the one who invented the idea of the pure play foundry. And ultimately, 
the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company became one of the world's most profitable chip makers. I mean, they make chips for Apple. And, of course, Apple doesn't worry because they, they keep their designs private. They'll make chips for Intel. They make chips for, um, for all the big tech companies. And they keep their technology private and they ship the chips back. And also a lot of startups can, can design a chip. So, like, Jim, if, if you'd want to, say, have a startup and design your own chip, you, you, could, you could get the software on your computer. You could design an integrated circuit. You could send that integrated circuit to Taiwan. They'd make it for you. And you, you'd have your own chip company. Actually, I could do none of that. But uh, in theory, I see what you're in, saying. In theory, in theory, if I had any technical smarts whatsoever. In theory, in theory you could do that. And so, and so he invented an entire, uh, an entire market. Which was really quite uh, quite impressive. Now, Chang left the uh, Industrial Technology Research Institute in 1994, and he became chairman of Vanguard International Semiconductor Corporation from 1994 to 2003, and he still served as chairman of TSMC. He finally then he retired from TSMC, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. He retired from TMS, TSMC in 2005. But the guy that took it over kind of messed it up. So he went back in 2009 and took it over again. And he's and he ran that until June 5th of 2018. And he announced his second retirement from TSMC. So that's why he came up on my radar screen, because he he retired only three days ago. And so I said, oh, well, wow. so you see, so I said, well, Morris Chang retired three days ago. So um, very timely. It's, it's very timely. So that's why I featured him this week. Uh, and of course, he is uh, Fondly known still as the father of the Taiwan's chip industry. There you go. Okay. So don't you want to tell us something about emails? Oh, yeah. We love your emails. <laughs> you can email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you immediately or certainly at the next show. Very good. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2. You can watch us do the show, if you dare, by downloading, downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. Ready to make a real difference in 2018? A degree in cybersecurity, digital forensics, or networking and telecommunications could help you secure your future as you help secure the world. Stratford University is now enrolling for 2018. Classes start January 8th with career-focused IT degree programs to fit your busy schedule on campus and online. Let Stratford's experienced IT faculty share their industry knowledge and practical solutions to help you succeed in one of today's most sought-after fields with accelerated classes and year-round program starts to help you earn your degree faster. Register today at stratford.edu slash 2018. That's stratford.edu slash 2018, where you'll also find details on Stratford's limited-time $15,000 IT scholarship competition to help you achieve your degree goals. Get complete information now at stratford.edu slash 2018. Stratford University, changing lives one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. 
Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. Please be seated, please be seated. Don't, don't, no, don't there, throw any today, oranges, no oranges, please. please. <laughs> Just sardines. Just sardines, that's right. Well, you know, this is not only a radio show, but also a classroom of the airwaves, and we like to assess whether our audience has been listening using a pop quiz. Mm-hmm. If you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll get tickets to fine dining at one of the Stratford University dining rooms, and you'll also get an A-plus for today's show. Now, earlier in the show, I was talking about Morris Chang. He, of course, was the uh, father of the uh, Taiwan's chip industry. And he worked at TI, and he was a rising star at TI until he got to Consumer Electronics, and then his star fell a little bit. But while he was in Consumer Electronics, he produced one particular device that that he was very, very proud of for the consumer market. What device might that have been? If you know the answer to today's question, well, now would be a great time to pick up your phone and give us a call. If you're dialing from west to the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. If you're calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're trying to email us on your Tandy TRS-80 in Canada, don't do that. Pick up the phone, call us instead, 877-936-9333. The wildcard line, 877-936-9333. And, of course, the international line, 877-936-39333. And, of course, if you want to call us from the South China Sea and need an encrypted connection, you can simply connect uh, with us on Skype. Connect to Tech Talk Radio 1, and your call will be forwarded to the studio free of charge. Andrew Mitchell, our adjunct professor for prize <laughs> distribution and crowd control, is standing by to take your call, so dial now. Okay. All right, let's talk about some geeky websites of the week. Now, this is a fun place to buy gifts for your favorite geek. Now, the one site that I really like is Think Geek. <laughs> ThinkGeek.com. Thinkgeek.com. You can buy all sorts of nerdy stuff there, which is uh, nerdy, not dirty. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And thinkgeek.com, I really do like it. They also have a lot of Star Wars stuff there. I I think a lot of geeks seem to be Star Wars and Star Trek. Oh, yeah. You know, Star Trek. Jurassic Park probably coming up here. Yeah, yeah. There's also another one called Scientifics Online scientificsonline.com. They have got great places. They've got great gifts for kids that are scientific. I mean, I was looking at some of those things. Were, I may buy some of the things on Scientifics Online. You'll have to bring them in. Yeah. They, they've got this one that you, you, you make music, and you can put pins in the thing, and you turn, or turn it around, and you can... You make music. They've got all. They've got clocks that you can put together. I mean, they've got some great stuff there to, that will stimulate kids. Scientifics.com. That's there's an S after scientificsonline.com. Those are two of my favorite geeky websites. Okay, we've got somebody who would okay. like to play. All right, our game. Let's go to the wild card line. This is Marty calling from Falls Church. Marty, good morning. How are you? 
Good morning. Okay, Doc, go ahead and ask the question. Yes, earlier in the show I talked about Morris Chang, the father of the of Taiwan's chip industry. Now, when he was flaming out at TI, was in the Consumer Electronics Division, but he did produce one device that he was particularly proud of. What was that device? Speak and spell. That is correct. We have a winner. <laughs> Marty, thanks a lot. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening and playing the game. We're going to put you on hold. And actually, it is Kevin Stanfield who is in today for Andrew, who is actually oh. on home detention today. Okay. So uh, he couldn't be with us. Uh, <laughs> so we will get that information and get the prize right out to you. It is Saturday morning, and you are indeed listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2. 1039 FM HD2. You can indeed um, watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope a device to your app, app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. Be right back. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk um, Radio. IT trends, so software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio presented by Stratford University coming up in a moment. Ready to make a real difference in 2018? A degree in cybersecurity, digital forensics, or networking and telecommunications could help you secure your future as you help secure the world. Stratford University is now enrolling for 2018. Classes start January 8th with career-focused IT degree programs to fit your busy schedule on campus and online. Let Stratford's experienced IT faculty share their industry knowledge and practical solutions to help you succeed in one of today's most sought-after fields. With accelerated classes and year-round program starts to help you earn your degree faster. Register today at stratford.edu slash 2018. That's stratford.edu slash 2018, where you'll also find details on Stratford's limited-time $15,000 IT scholarship competition to help you achieve your degree goals. Get complete information now at stratford.edu slash 2018. Stratford University, changing lives one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now let's talk about the summer solstice. Yes. We just uh, We just went through the summer solstice last week. It's also known as midsummer, and it occurs when one of the Earth's poles have a maximum tilt toward the sun mm. because the earth is tilting as it goes around the sun mm-hmm. and there's one orientation where the tilt is pointed right at the sun and that occurs that is then when the tilt points toward the sun that is the uh, summer solstice then when you go around to the other side six months later the other side of the axis is tilted toward the sun and that's the winter solstice so that is the definition of the southern and or the northern and the southern solstice. Mm-hmm. And so this is it's also the day where we have the longest day. It's the day that is the longest in the entire Most year. Most sunshine, right? Most sunshine in the entire if year. The sun actually comes out That's that right. day behind the clouds. Now by the way, if you you may have wondered exactly how much is the tilt toward the sun. You, you may Doc, have, you, you may have how wondered How much is the tilt toward the sun? 23 degrees and 44 minutes. About 23 and a half degrees tilt toward the sun. Mhm. Now, see, that's another thing. You go to a cocktail party with that, you'll clear the clear room. Clear the room. Clear the, the Cheetos room. are all yours. That's right. 
Now, here's the thing. Now, depending on the calendar, the summer solstice occurs in the northern hemisphere between June 20th and June 22nd. And in the northern hemisphere, which would be, you know, where Australia is, their winter solstice occurs between December 20th and December 23rd. So that's the significance of it. Now, it turns out that, historically speaking, it has been a celebration of fertility. So there have been some wild, wild parties built around summer solstice, but I'm more interested in the tilt of the earth than those parties. I am too, and I have questions, (laughs) but go ahead. Okay. Now let's talk about the U.S. Supreme Court. Wait a minute. I'll hold it. I I have a very serious question. Okay. Why does the earth tilt? Why does well, you're, you're Mr. Physics. You should know this, yeah. right? Well, I don't know why it, ah! it was. The, it was back when the when the when the whole solar. So the thing is, the Earth is tilted. So I was back in the formation of the uh, of the right, solar system. I, Why don't you check that? Let's see that if Wikipedia out. has. <laughs> you, check, you check that out because because the Earth is not really rotating on the axis. Its rotation is not the same as the axis of its rotation around the sun. So that tilt is there. So you check that out. You check out why. It, but if you know if it didn't tilt, we wouldn't have summer and winter. Well, that's right. That's the thing. That's it the would, magical part of all of this is that we have seasons because we have of seasons this. because of the tilt. So I think it was just the grand plan of things. So why don't you check things out there? Now the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in favor of digital privacy in a five-four decision this last week. The justices said that police need a search warrant to gather phone location data as evidence for trials. Now, this reversed and remanded a decision by the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. It came out of a of a court case, Carpenter versus the United States, which was the first case where phone location data was used to get the to get the um, to get the warning. It. It, and it basically said the, the police do not have the right to just grab that data. Now, the, dis, the dispute dates back to a 2011 robbery in Detroit. And then the police gathered months of phone location data from Timothy Carter's phone provider. They got all of that location data from the phone provider without a warrant. They pulled together 12,898 different locations from Carpenter over 127 days. And that led them to the, identify that he was at the location of specific robberies, and they used that to get a conviction. This overturns the use of that data without a warrant. And so I think this is a good thing for digital privacy, because our phones now track more and more and more things, and I think that, that there has to be some way to protect that data. So I think that's really a good decision. But it was only a 5-4 decision, which is kind of interesting, so there wasn't complete agreement on the court. The Supreme Court also ruled that Internet sales companies are now going to have to collect state sales tax. This is a huge thing. Remember, it had been that the Internet was exempt from sales tax, and the ruling had previous ruling had been that in order for a state to collect sales tax, the Internet uh, provider of the goods had to have a physical location in the state. So, for instance, if Amazon had a warehouse in your state, you'd have to pay sales tax because they had a physical location in your state. But if they did not have a physical location in your state, they would not have to pay any sales tax. And that turned out to be that turned out to be uh, you know a uh, sort of a landmark decision that had been carrying forward. But the states didn't like it because e-commerce sales have grown to astronomical size. 
I mean, last year there were $454 billion, and the states are losing out on a lot of money. They estimate that the states are losing out on about $12 billion in tax revenue because of this particular ruling. So in the majority opinion that was written by Anthony Kennedy, the Supreme Court said times have changed to such a degree that online retailers no longer qualify for an arbitrary advantage over competitors who collect sales tax by claiming they don't have a physical presence in the state. Uh, And so they ruled that sales tax has to be collected. Now, Amazon said that, you know, they're already paying sales tax in all the states anyway. But here's the thing. Third-party vendors that sell through the Amazon platform are not paying sales tax, so it will affect those people. ETSY and eBay have both asked Congress to intervene and do something about this because it's a big problem. Now, the good news is that this tax collection only applies to online retailers with more than $100,000 in annual sales or 200 transactions from the state. So that means these small people that sell on eBay or ETSOY are not going to have to do sales tax because they're going to be too small for that. But I think that's actually a good one. That is the theme from Star Trek. Oh, yes. I have an answer. I figure figure you're finished with that last item, right? Yes, I'm finished with that. Okay. So the answer is... There really isn't an answer. There's not an answer. There's speculation, but there really isn't an answer. The uh, There is speculation that because during the formation of the universe, mm-hmm. Earth is the conglomeration of basically of other smaller planets that mm-hmm. collided, that somehow during those collisions, the Earth was tilted on its axis. I now, see. why it tilts back and forth... No it, no, no, it always stays the same direction of the tilt. Okay. It uh, rot- The axis never changes direction. Okay. All right? But it... When it but goes to the other side, the bottom points toward the sun, and when it comes back to this side, oh, gotcha. the top points at the now, sun. Now but it's always pointed in the same direction, the tilt. So that is the best that science can can tell us is that it was it was all this collision going on knocked it on on its axis. Okay, okay, so nobody really knows. Well, nobody thank, really knows. Thank you, really. Good. I'm here not to help. <laughs> That's okay, excellent. Go ahead. Okay, this is the thing. The U.S. is ignoring some alternate technology in this border controversy. I'm, you know, that, this was kind of an interesting point. I, I was reading an article about this, and and they actually do have. Uh, previously, they were letting people go with with ankle bracelets. You know, they'd say <laughs> you have to come back, and they'd put on ankle bra- bracelets, and they would track them, and have to call in twice a week. And they were, and I spokesman said that the with ankle bracelets, they had a 99.8% compliance rate for people who would come back to, you know, to you know, to for their for their hearing, and for some reason in this latest thing down on the border, they they, they were they weren't imp- implementing the ankle bracelets, and. Um, and I and I don't know why that is the case, but the by the end of 2016, 50,000 people were approved directly for ankle bracelets, you know, on 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 the border between California, Arizona, and Texas. So I'm thinking there may be a technology solution to some of these issues that they should probably study a little bit further. Mm-hmm. Now let's go back 10 years ago on Tech Talk. Okay. I pulled an article from 10 years ago, because we've been doing this show here more than 10 years on... A little over 11 now. A little over 11. I'm sorry so, I didn't bring a cake this year, but... And so 10 years ago, this was, a, this was an article that I featured, Humanity's Brush with Extinction. Oh, it's a summer feel-good topic. That's Great, right. okay. 70,000 <laughs> years ago, human beings may have come very close to extinction. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the human population at that time was reduced to some small isolated groups in Africa, apparently because of drought, small groups. And they were moving around trying to find water. And the, and the at that time, the number of humans may have shrunk to as low as 2,000. Wow. Back in Africa. And, you know, they... What they do, they you know they've got this the the genographic project tracks DNA, and so they're able to when, whenever you go to a small group of people, there is a um, you know there's a uh, that's reflected in the in the DNA permutation. So they're able to infer this from the DNA study that they did. Pretty interesting. So it's, it may have shrunk down to two thousand people before they began to expand in the early Stone Age. Now this study. Ex- ex- you know, illustrate the extraordinary power of genetics to reveal insights. Now, this Wells, uh, this was according to Spencer Wells. He's director of the Genographic Project, was launched in 2005 to study the anthropology using genetics. And uh, the migration of humans out of Africa to populate the rest of the world started about 60,000 years ago, but very little was known about what happened before that migration 60,000 years ago. So this Near extinction 70,000 years ago was sort of a new new development. Now, the new study looks at mitochondrial DNA of the Khoi and Sands people in South Africa who appear to have diverged from other people between 90,000 and 150,000 years ago. Then Eastern Africa experienced a series of droughts between 135,000 and 90,000 years ago, and there was a huge climactic shift in that contributed to the population changes, divided into small isolated groups, many of them dying off. So this research was funded by the National Geographic Society. Very interesting. I, I actually signed up for the Human Genographic Project. I sent in my DNA, and I, got, I, I traced my ancestors all the way back to, you know, Africa. Really? Yeah. I mean, everything goes back to Africa. Mm-hmm. So, so technically, everybody is African-American. It mm-hmm. just, it just it depends on when you left Africa, when your ancestors <laughs> left Africa. See, mine, mine left after Africa around 60,000 years ago. So, wow. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm remotely African-American, mm-hmm. but I'm in, in that sense. You don't have much time. So. Okay. ISO 12 is going to share location data for 911 calls. This is a new deal. This is the, the next uh, version of the iOS. There's always been an issue. They're actually... Instead of using t- phone location data, they're going to use GPS data and send it on the 911 calls. People, have, 911 people have been begging for this, and finally Apple has agreed. And Google is working on the same system for Android, so we can expect that when you call 911 from your cell phone in the next three or four months, they'll actually know your location very accurately. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And also, go check out the programs uh, that Stratford University offers in their various uh, IT, accounting, cybersecurity, healthcare, nursing, culinary arts, business. And tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. See you next week. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.